0: Here's your host, Dane Carlson. Our episode today is brought to you by Cathode Ray Media. Cathode Ray is a full service marketing agency that connects government organizations to their communities. Wondering how they can help you? Here are just a few ideas. They use ingenuity and imagination to create awareness of progress and opportunity within your community. They help residents and visitors find local shopping, dining, and service businesses. They make residents and stakeholders aware of challenges that affect them and their community, while encouraging them to get help or get involved. They can also work to help attract new small businesses while helping micro entrepreneurs. Learn how this small but mighty woman-owned and operated marketing agency can help your community. They use tried and true methods that will connect your organization to your residents using social, digital, and traditional media. Curious? Visit cathode ray.com. That's K A T H O D E R A Y.com to learn more or ask for a free no obligation consultation. We thank Cathode Ray for their support of the Econ Dev Show. Welcome back to the Econ Dev Show. Today we're here with Todd Gabe. He is the professor of economics at the University of Maine and author of the book, The Pursuit of Economic Development. Todd, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Absolutely. Hey, I wanted to check out your book. I wanted to read it, but I went on Amazon and the hardcover was $97. The paperback was 109 And the Kindle book was, I think, 79 Is it a textbook or is that just a function of the market that it is so expensive?
1: It's priced as a textbook. So okay. yeah, as, as you know, the price of textbooks is, is pretty pretty high. Um Absolutely. Yeah, but- but but I'll be I'll be I'm willing to cover sort of the highlights during during this oh, podcast, good. and I've also got a bunch of videos up on YouTube that people. Oh, I found as
0: well. you the, those YouTube videos. Those are very good. I thought oh, that good. those really explained things in a way that I hadn't seen from not just from academia, but even in the industry. I hadn't seen ones that were that clear and um, simple. What drove you to create those? Do you use those in your classes?
1: Yeah, I'm actually teaching an online version of my economic development class this semester. So I put together the YouTube videos uh, for that class. And I figured, heck, if I'm putting together for the class, I might as well make them available to, to others as well. Yeah.
0: So what kinds of people take that class? I mean, are they people that want to be economic developers or are they undergraduates who have no idea what they're doing and they, this is the class they ended up in?
1: I think it's probably a mix. I have uh, a few graduate students that have taken the class over the years, but it's mostly third and fourth year undergraduate students. And many of them actually have a, an interest in state and local economic development and fi- I think find the class interesting. So yeah. yeah, That's good.
0: And uh, I guess before we really dive in, the there was a a quote from Richard Florida, I saw on Amazon as a review of your book. And it said that, Gabe's *The Pursuit of Economic Development* is one of the very best books on state and regional economic development out there. It is a textbook for those who want to understand how places grow, and a playbook for mayors, business leaders, economic developers looking to spur development of their communities. I mean, that is pretty high praise from somebody that we all sort of look to for guidance and advice and inspiration.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very flattering and, and kind of Richard to give a. A nice endorsement for the book, and I should note, uh, Richard and I do work on some projects together. Um, over the years, we've co-authored some some journal articles and, and oh. worked on some projects. So I've I've known him probably for fifteen or so years. Yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. So you're a professor of economics, so I, I would assume that means you teach, you know, macro and micro and and all of that. So how does this economic development course that you teach? How does that play in?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. I I do teach a principal of microeconomics class. I teach an applied economic data analysis course. I teach industrial organizations, so sort of standard core economics courses. The economic development class is really just because that was sort of my area of research interest. I, I did my dissertation on tax incentives back in Ohio. I've really studied over the years pretty much any topic related to economic development, broadly defined, we've done studies on tourism, we've done studies on industry clusters. A lot of the more recent work looks at sort of the importance of human capital and skills to economic development. Moving forward, we're doing a big project on cultural amenities and performing arts with a focus on rural areas. That's a project we're kicking off uh, this summer, doing some work on urban influence and economic integration with Canada. And then another big project that we're starting this summer looks at the technology use of manufacturing firms. So we're going to launch a big, a big survey. So I think really that my, my interest in teaching that class is because I tried to build from a lot of my own experience doing these types of projects and, and working with state and regional policymakers.
0: So how did you get into this originally? How did you, you know, how did this come up on your radar, this seems like something that's sort of just a little bit outside of the standard wheelhouse of an economics professor.
1: Yeah, well, I got interested in economics as an undergraduate student. I actually went to college thinking I might be a pre-med, and okay. I was in college in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, and I wanted to go, go to Japan as a, as a semester abroad, like a lot of college students mm-hmm. in that era. And so I was really, I was looking for a major that would have the fewest number of required courses because I wanted to be able to take as many Japanese language classes as I could and also do a a pre-med curriculum. And uh, a student that was a year ahead of me in college pointed out that economics had the the fewest number of required classes. And it's interesting because that friend of mine is, is now a, a very prominent uh, kind of economist and, and leader of a... Of a prominent uh, business college, and, um, and I, of course, I got into economics myself. So that was sort of how I got into economics. And then I just think, you know, you get you get into a field and you, and you look at different areas. And I really think that sort of the state and regional economic development part was seemed really like like real to me because you can you can kind of look around and and just think about the place where you live. Um, I grew up in Central Ohio. Um, the town's called Newark, Ohio. And I'm going to tell you the county because it's a county that probably a lot of economic development people have heard about recently. It's Licking County, Ohio. Right. And it made the news because the Intel chip plant is um, <laughs> is is locating. I guess we I, I guess for being from Licking County, I like to claim it, um, although it's sort of the other side of the county. So it'd be about a, a 30 minute drive from where I grew up. But again, that's a a real tangible example of how you you live in a place you're, you're, well, you grew up there. I I lived there until I was about 18, 19 years old. And when I went back uh, to Ohio, I I don't wanna sound like a cliche, like a pretender song, but it it felt like my my city was gone, right? I mean, the drive from uh, Columbus to where I used to live looked really different. And that's a a kind of regional economic development right in front of your eyes.
0: Wow, I hadn't realized that. That really just drives us all home and makes this so timely that, that you're from there. That's interesting. So let's talk about these tools, right? You're going to be you're working on some research that borrows the tools of financial economics to examine market integration of U.S. regions. That sounds so interesting. So explain to me what you're doing and what's going to come out of that.
1: Yeah. So so this is actually a couple projects I'm working on with a with a colleague who's trained as an econometrician and um, in financial economics, and it's a a newer faculty member. And we were just kind of throwing around some ideas on some projects we could collaborate on. And as it turns out, uh, financial economists and econometricians have been studying market integration for for probably what, 15, 20 years, um, and, and primarily focusing on the integration of different financial variables and macroeconomic variables. And it occurred to me, I guess the two of us, that we could do something similar by looking at regional data. So um, the project we're working on right now is looking at economic integration of all U.S. counties with Canada. So to do this, you need lots of data. So we have Mm -hmm. monthly level employment data for all U.S. counties and the provinces of Canada going back, I think it's at least uh, 20, 30 years, and just looking at how they sort of move together. So there would be some places in the US that are highly integrated with Canada. And then there'd be other places in the US where they're really not integrated at all. And again, I, you know, it it sort of builds from tools that would be used to, to look at how different financial variables and even how, how banks are integrated. And of course, that that's also sort of timely today. Right. <laughs> thinking about how, if if there is a shock to one bank or one financial market, how does that influence other markets? I mean, there could be some financial markets where there might be a shock in one, and it's not felt in the others. Right. And again, that that's sort of how uh, sort of the, the the original interest in that tool. Um, we're applying it uh, to regions, and also another application is we're looking at. Um, the urban influence on um, on U.S. counties, and, and that's a project we're actually going to start up with uh, later this summer. Yeah. So all of this sort of comes
0: from taking, de- looking at the data, and yep. comparing, like this integration with Canada. So you you take all the counties and you track whether the numbers go up or down, and then you look at the Canadian. I don't know the counties in Canada. I don't know. Yeah,
1: we're, know. we're doing yeah. province level, yeah.
0: Provinces. So then you look at the provinces and you see if those numbers go up and down, and then you see if there's any correlation. Is is that basically what we're saying?
1: That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, that's how it's been explained to me. My my colleague is sort of the expert on the the tool. It's it's a it's a pretty complex time series type of econometric sure. kind of tool. Of course,
0: because um, it's not. But- it's it maybe not is exactly the same moment. The changes don't happen in one place. The same moment they happen in another place. Yeah, is that mostly border counties that are experiencing that, or are there counties in the southeast or in you know wherever that are also experiencing that? That you see. Well,
1: well that was that was our original question to see really how integrated border counties are because uh-huh. um, living and working in Maine, we share a, a border right. with Canada, so you might think that hey, if you're on the border. When there's a, a, an economic shock in Canada, it would have a larger impact. Um, there, there. The, the border counties some have a, a, a moderate level of integration with Canada, but we actually find that the population size of the county is a larger driver. Sure. So actually, Los Angeles County, I believe, has the highest integration. So it's 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 uh, big places. Um, and then of course, there also is a effect related to proximity or whether or not you're a border county, uh-huh. but the effect of proximity really declines pretty fast as you, as you move away from the border. It's like I said, it's primarily the, the size of the region. So it builds from the old, uh, what we call gravity models. If, right. If, you know, if you took a sort of a, a, an economic development course or an urban economics class, you might have learned about the gravity model, which is borrowed from physics. So the, the, that the attraction between two objects is, um, directly re- related to the mass of those two objects. And of course, inversely related to the distance. So that gravity model also explains integration with Canada.
0: That is so interesting. Yeah. And then
1: I, if you're going to do the same sort of thing
0: with the, the urban areas and the rural areas, I'd, I'd imagine it'd be this. A, a similar sort of thing, huh?
1: Yeah, v- very similar story. We we've actually done work focusing on a kind of a more a, a smaller scale where we've looked at urban influence just within the state of Maine. So we're looking at how your kind of your rural areas of Maine are integrated with our three metropolitan areas, which are Portland, uh, Bangor, and Lewiston, Auburn. For for I, I'm sure for, from where you're. You're sitting. You're thinking, "Wow, those don't; those aren't urban areas that I necessarily think of when I think of of big urban centers in the U.S." But those are the three urban areas in Maine, and we're looking at how other places are integrated. Um, and that was sort of a proof of concept, and now we're taking it farther to look at all counties in the U.S. and That's where we'll really look at to see what's the integration between. U.S. counties with big cities, places like New York and Uh Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Dallas, those types of cities. Interesting.
0: So, what would the practical application of that information be?
1: Well, um, I think there are just certainly a lot of people that have an interest in how, you know, kind of comparing more urban versus rural areas in terms of different indicators of of growth and development. Um, The USDA actually has. A classification system that they use to classify all u s counties so if you if you look up usDA urban influence codes you can find a a spreadsheet again that shows every u s county and it's a numerical code between one and twelve where one would be sort of the most urban um, and twelve would be the most rural if you will so it's it's kind of another way of of looking at what you know, kind of a, a different spin that we're going to put on urban influence that is more informed by the actual sort of integration of of how a, a shock in one place affects affects the other. So let's go back to your book and your class. Yeah,
0: Why don't you, can you give us a brief overview of the book?
1: Yeah, so this book again, I, I I've been doing a lot of work on on these topics over the years, and I thought it would be interesting to sort of pull a lot of it together and 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 write a book. So really the book looks at regions of of the US, so we do state-level analysis, and we also look at metropolitan areas, and I'm primarily focusing on sort of growth and development going back to 1990 through the mid 2010s because I I did the research for the book in the mid 2010s, so that would have been the most current data okay. data at the time. So but I, I kind of like that period. It's it's a twenty five year period that sort of looks at what you could kind of think like one generation of workers. Um, sure. And also around that time, there were some really profound changes happening to to the U.S. economy in terms of sort of the shift from a manufacturing economy to more more service and and technology based. Um, so I actually thought that would be a, kind of a good period um, to look at. So I built economic development indicators again for all states and and metropolitan areas, and I I tried to be as as sort of comprehensive as I could. So there's employment growth between 1990 and and the mid 2010s. There's employment growth over a shorter 10 year period. Unemployment rates on the income side. There's income growth. There's per capita income. There's you know um, there was also a piece that I built in called the stability of employment that gets at sort of the ups and downs, because you have some regions where maybe every year there's a large increase in employment during the summer, if it's a a beach town versus Mm -hmm. a place that has more stable employment. So I pulled all that data together and built these economic development indicators. And then really the rest of the book was just trying to say what explains the, the growth and development of regions so I looked at things like business climate and taxes. I looked at human capital, sort of the standard educational attainment uh, measures. I looked at things like the creative economy, looked at different types of skills, looked at industries. So there's sort of a, a nuanced story around the effect of manufacturing on the growth and development of regions. I looked at large versus small businesses. I looked at amenities. So there were just lots of different um different things that, that you might think as a, you know, working in economic development, you might think, Hey, it's, it's amenities that, that drives growth and development, or it's the types of industries we have in our region, or it's the educational attainment or human capital of our workers. So I try to, to kind of apply the same methods at, to look at all those different explanations for sort of how regions grow and develop.
0: So uh, spoiler, which one really does it, which of those is, is really key?
1: Well, it, it maybe doesn't come to a surprise. It's it's really sort of the technology indicators and human capital. That's that's sort of it in a nutshell. Uh, one caveat there, though, is if you're comparing the growth of states versus a growth of metropolitan areas, there are some differences in what might be important. But again, if you if you're really just saying what explains why why one region or metropolitan area did a lot better than others over that, that 25 year period, it would be the human capital. It would be the technology, whether it's technology-based businesses or, 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 or technical skill. Um, And again, that when I did this research, I tried to build all these indicators back as of 1990 to see how conditions in 1990 affected things moving forward. And, you know, it's sort of interesting, you know, today, when you look at Industry data or occupational data, you see a lot of computer-based industries in the, the industry classification, mm-hmm. and and a lot of these technology-based occupations and the occupational data. If you go back to those same data sources from 1990, because you didn't have as many different types of tech-using jobs and and tech-using industries, um, you know that the indicators were a little little crude but that's because that's what you had available right back in 1990 that's what the economy looked like in 1990 yeah
0: so it's about p pe- it's about human capital having more people people moving to the region and having more just technology in general industries that are related to technology technical training all those kind all those kinds of things
1: yeah yeah for for technology it would be indicators of high technology um, so there are certain sectors of the economy that are identified as high-tech. Um, biotechnology, again, it was it was trying to come up with um, an estimate for percentage of businesses in a place as of 1990 right. that were in, in biotechnology and environmental technology. So really, it didn't matter which indicator of technology you used, um, you found that it had a, a, a good impact on the economic development of, especially uh, metropolitan areas. Interesting. Um, go- going back to human capital, it, it really wasn't so much the, the the number of people. It was really the sort of the, uh, I used indicators related to college attainment. So percentage of adults in a region with at least a, a four-year college degree. I used creative economy indicators. So that's looking at, at the occupations that that people hold. Um, so those were sort of the primary indicators of human capital, and again, those had had large large impacts on economic development. But but what was interesting is some of those measures of human capital impacted things like uh, incomes, say more than employment growth. And 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 in the book, I, I try to make a distinction between the growth of a place and indicators of economic development. Because, um, you know, you, you could have a place that's growing either in terms of population or employment, but perhaps standards of living, uh, well-being isn't changing very much. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I used um, income-based measures to get at people's well-being. So, you know, as it turns out that there were there were a, a lot of places that both grew in terms of increasing the number of jobs and employment and also saw an improvement in incomes. So they kind of grew and developed, but then there were other places that might've done one, but not the other.
0: That makes sense. You know, this is interesting because this was a a period from 1990 to, you know, mid 20 teens, that pretty radical time of change. 1990, um, I, let's see, I was, uh, I just started high school in 1990. And, you know, I didn't have the internet. And i was a very very early adopter of the internet and i i got it probably when i was maybe a senior in high school that was before even um you know netscape navigator was out i had a, had a terminal account at the at the university and i could go for and uh, you know uh do that kind of stuff i mean it's been a pretty transformative period of time so do, I guess what I'm asking is: do, do these indicators that you saw in this period of time will they carry over into today, where you know children are growing up, they you know use high technology all the time? they're you know, they have iPads from the moment they can hold something. Is that still an indicator, or is that maybe a, not so much anymore? How does that part work?
1: I, you know, it, it, it's it's funny you ask that question because that's something I I thought about a lot as to say: Okay, if you were to redo this project in say 30 years and look at the sort of what was important to the growth and development of places between 2020 and say, say, say 2050. And if I had to place a bet, I would say that technology and, and human capital would still be an important part of the story. And my bet would also be in 2050, probably your top Companies in terms of sales and re- recognition would also be technology using technology developing um, companies. Um, it'd be hard to see it see it uh, sort of uh, the importance uh, decline. Although I imagine if you ask somebody in the nineteen sixties or seventies, they would say it's always going to be manufacturing. So right. maybe something new new will come along. Also, I, I think something with technology is we take it for granted. We take these things for granted. Uh, my, our children take cell phones for granted. They take the internet for granted. I don't even know if they think about it in terms of technology. Like right. to me, it's still amazing that that we can have this conversation, what two thousand miles apart in in real time, and people can can listen to the podcast, you know, any, really anywhere in the world. And maybe to our children, it's just meh. You know, it's just because they don't think of this as technology. They think of this as just the world world that they live in. But again, if you if you look out over the next 20, 30 years, it's going to be the digital economy. It's at least as far as as I can tell right now, maybe in uh, in 2050, somebody can can redo this study and say, hey, it was something changed around. 2020 maybe 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 we're at a point of change right now but but I sort of doubt it yeah
0: you mentioned manufacturing the other thing that happened between 1990 and 2015 was the um offshoring to China after you know 2000 basically Uh, maybe is maybe that's being reevaluated, and ultimately maybe that manufacturing will come back to the United States or or to places closer to us I guess Mm -hmm. what Is that, that, uh, in your opinion, is that going to be a big driver or is the manufacturing that utilizes high technology is the one that we should be more interested in?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I I think certainly US-wide and probably worldwide, manufacturing uses a lot more technology than it would have uh, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So my, my, my hunch is that if you look for growth in manufacturing especially in the us a lot of it will be driven by by technology that's something that we'll we'll definitely learn this summer when we launch our our technology survey for for us manufacturers to get a sense of what they're working or, or what they're using for technology it's you hear a lot about AI um, machine learning robotics mm-hmm. kind of you you can you can go check down the list of of technologies, um, to see how, sort of the importance of, of what we call a uh, sort of the new manufacturing or precision advanced manufacturing, things like that.
0: Yeah. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And I've heard that all of the, the what the United States excels at is this very high tech manufacturing, the very top of the, you know, the line to high technology stuff is, still done in the United States. Um, and at the end of the day, it's going to remain in the United States. So that does play right into this idea that it's the high technology that is the chief indicator of success. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you if you even just drove down to like specific occupations, um, this was a, a study I did probably eight, 10 years ago where I sort of really drove down and said, okay, what what's the occupation category? that's maybe the most predictive for things like the productivity of regions. And it's the computer scientist. Mm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. what's interesting is computer scientists make up a very small percentage of the workforce, most anywhere. It's, it's not like, you know, 20, 30% of the, right. the people that you bump into on the street, say, hey, I'm a computer programmer or a computer scientist. It's a, it's a, a very small occupational category, most anywhere but if you look at the the productivity of regions, it's a, it's a very strong predictor of, Interesting. of how well regions doing. Yeah.
0: So then if you're, if you're in a region and, and you want to improve it, I, I, you're saying that you need to have, you need to have, you need to have programmers. You need to have computer scientists. You need to have training for that. You need to have that kind of stuff. And is that just the magic bullet that if you do that, you'll have success?
1: I I wish I, I think we all wish we all wish I I don't like using the term um ma- magic bullet um you know one of the one of the things I ended with in the book is that that economic development is is difficult to achieve um if it was easiest to say hey let let's build more more college programs and and two year mm-hmm. programs kind of covering the whole gamut of of computer programming and and other computer technicians you know, it's a, it's a mix of, of having those workers, but it's also having the, the investment by, by business and the, sort of the political climate to, to support innovation. And so you, you kind of need all those things, but yet they're there. I'm sure that we can all name places that have all those ingredients, but yet still haven't kind of built traction on, on economic development. But like I said, cer- certainly. Having those technology-based occupations is a, is, a, is a strong indicator, but unfortunately it's not a, a, a magic um, kind of answer. If, if it was, every region would say, hey, instead of being um, you know the next Silicon Valley, we will be Silicon Valley.
0: Read the subject. This, you yeah. said this summer you're going to be launching this new project to um, oh, look at the importance of cultural amenities to regional economic development. Let's yeah. talk about that. What, is, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, well, we're we're going to try to build a a, a may, maybe a, a, a state of the art database of the cultural amenities and sort of performing arts assets for. Okay. Uh, we're going to try to do it for for every U.S. county. So we've got some ideas on how we're going to to collect data and you know identify sort of as many as we can. I I think that we might be able to identify at least 250 maybe 300,000 of these types of amenities and, and sort of performing arts activities and and then ultimately just see, sort of see how they differ across different parts uh, or different types of US regions you asked about how we might apply our our work on urban influence mm-hmm. part of what we're doing is we're building those urban influence indicators to see the different types of cultural amenities and performing arts across or sort of the whole spectrum of, of places that are, are really highly urban versus more rural. And part of what's driving this is, if you look at some rural communities in the US, um, I, I don't know if technology is necessarily the most viable strategy for a small isolated rural area. So many of them are turning to things like cultural amenities and, and sort of the arts to promote rural economic development. So really that's sort of the question that's driving this project is what is the impact of cultural amenities, performing arts, amenities, and even things like outdoor recreation amenities, sort of that whole package, how does that affect the growth and development of rural places, but then also all sorts of regions to see whether or sure. not that's a, a good strategy. So. Sort of the step one for that project is to build up these these indicators of cultural amenities. That's that's going to be
0: a very interesting study to see the results of because I I just talked to somebody the other day who was whose county was prioritizing outdoor recreation. I've talked to a number of people that have in counties where they've developed a symphony or a, mm. some other art thing to, in, in an effort to maybe drive tourism or. or just to build the community. So that will be interesting to see the actual data, to see if there is um, an actual impact.
1: And, and that's exactly what's driving this is we, we uh-huh. hear it in, in, in Maine and, and other places that um, with the decline in manufacturing, mm-hmm. again, with sort of the difficulty, you know, for, for, for technology, um, you know, you need somewhat of a critical mass of right. people and businesses right. and, and the investment and the sort of that whole mix. So for a lot of rural areas, they think, hey, if we if we develop our our arts and culture and our outdoor amenities, that might help for for economic development. And and again, there is evidence there was a a study done by the USDA, probably at least 10, 15 years old, where they looked at the population growth across different types of rural areas and found that the high amenity rural areas, as they were defined at the time, experienced really uh, robust uh, population growth, whereas the low amenity rural areas really saw no change to their population. So again, it's sort of the spirit of that to to look in terms of, you know, and also a, a, a rural community can think of this as, as, is this a strategy to attract more tourists and build mm-hmm. a, you know, bring in more visitors that, that will come in and, and spend and have a, an economic impact or is it a strategy to attract people like that wanna relocate? And and so right. I imagine that's part of what we'll look at um down the road to see are these high amenity rural areas um seeing more tourists that come and and, and spend a weekend or spend a week, or are they attracting more people? Wow. That's fascinating. That
0: will yeah. be really interesting to see because like I said, I know that a lot of people anecdotally think that's the case. So that will yeah. yeah. That would be so fabulous to know. Well, yeah. Todd, this has been phenomenal. Um, I want to cut it short here. I think we could yeah. probably go on for, for days at this point. Yeah, I'll have to have you back, but um, this is excellent. So if somebody wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Can I, can I give you my email address? That's sure the of best course. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, absolutely. Uh, it's just my name, uh, Todd, T-O-D-D. And then mm-hmm. there's a dot, Gabe, G-A-B-E. So it's just first name, dot, last name, at maine, M-A-I-N-E dot edu, because I'm a a professor at the University of Maine. So I have a University of Maine email address. That's the best way to reach me. Yeah.
0: That's a a very easy email address. Yeah. Um, Well, I hope that, you know, if any of our listeners need you, they can, they get in contact with you. I hope that some of them buy your textbook and (laughs) read that. I'm going to pick it up now that I know it's a textbook and it's not just been artificially inflated because some bots at Amazon were fighting with each other to have the, the highest or the lowest price.
1: Yeah. Well, I should say it's priced as a textbook when you, here, I've actually got, I thought I had a copy. Oh, so it's, oh. it is, it's not a textbook like you would carry around to a class. Um, uh-huh. I'm using it as a, as the primary text in my class. It is 230 some pages long. Um, but Like I said, it goes through chapter. chapters. Um, you know, on, on sort of each of the the main topics. Um, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely worth a a read. I think it's, uh, it, it, it's pretty dense in terms of the information it contains, but yeah.
0: Well, good. Well, I look forward to it. I'll have to have you back to, to talk about some other parts of it. All right, Dane. Excellent. Well, nice to meet you. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Take care.